Hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Grades In Students. My name is Neve, and in this new series, A Student's Guide, each episode will explore a different topic associated with becoming a barrister from a student's perspective. Today's episode is going to be all about mooting, what it is, how to start, how to improve and how to succeed. And my guest for today is Samuel Moss, someone very qualified in this topic as last year's mooting officer for the Association of Grey's Inn Students. Hello, Samuel. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. It's nice to be here. So just before we get into today's topic of mooting, it will be good just to hear a little bit about you and your past and how you have now got to where you are at the bar. So I did a undergraduate in French and Arabic. That was approximately 10 years ago. So I've had a bit of a circuitous route to the bar. I then went on to become a teacher. I taught French and English up in a school in Birmingham before the COVID pandemic interrupted everything and I rethought my options. I think I always had in the back of my mind that the bar might have been something I wanted to do. And I came down, did the GDL and the bar course at City, and I start pupillage this year, September, having finished the bar course last April. Fantastic. Again, a really interesting journey to the bar. But as this podcast series is all about giving students current and future a little insight into how to make it to the bar, I thought it was relevant to have a real in-depth discussion about mooting. I think mooting is one of the first buzzwords that I ever came across when I was interested in coming to the bar. It's a real bit of barrister jargon that wouldn't really make much sense to people that weren't clued in on this world. And I do think it can be quite intimidating at first. So just as an introduction to mooting in itself, can you give a little explanation for those who might not know about what mooting is? Yes, of course. I say that mooting is essentially the the simulation of the court process. That could be a hearing, it could be a trial, and the mooters, the participants, the students, play the role of in-court counsel or, or the barristers. And there is essentially a fictional legal problem which is set up. It's often an appeal to a higher court, often the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court. And the mooters represent one of the parties to that dispute and they have an opportunity to make submissions to the judge or the judges who are often in a mooting context, young barristers or in the more senior competitions, more senior barristers, if not judges, uh, and you have to convince them of your legal submissions. I think that answers my next question, which is going to be why is it that mooting is looked on as such a core skill for aspiring barristers? I guess it's that first introduction to legal submissions and oral advocacy, would you say it really parallels those key skills that you need to be a barrister? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are three essential parts of mooting. The legal research aspect, identifying the law, rationalising, understanding what the law is in a particular area which governs the dispute uh, in question. Uh, Written advocacy in the form of a skeleton argument, which lots of moots require. And then the oral advocacy which is involved in the actual mooting process in front of your judges. And that includes judicial questions and dealing with those effectively. And I think the reason why it's looked on as as so important, so essential, for example, in a pupillage application form, is that those are the skills that barristers have to to show in their day-to-day practice. Absolutely. And it's so rounded, as you say, it's not just about oral advocacy, it's written advocacy, and it's that key legal research as well. 
So I think you've summed that up perfectly about why it is so integral to students that are wanting to come to the bar. It's a great way to demonstrate that you have those core skills, but also it's a good introduction. It's a good insight as to what the job might involve, albeit in a fictional forum. It's also just really fun. I mean, I think I said to you before we started recording that I thought mooting was probably the most important thing you do on the GDL. But I'd say it's also one of the most enjoyable and it's the first chance you get as a student often. And if you're doing the GDL, you're moving from something completely different often. It's your first opportunity to see whether actually working as a barrister might be something that interests you. And the problems that they throw at you are often quite fun. And we're going to go on to talk about the kinds of competitions you can get involved with. But the issues that can be involved in a mooting uh, in a particular moot might range from anything from really intricate issues to do with contract formation, yeah. anywhere to the lawfulness of shooting down civilian aircraft in an international law context. Yeah. It can be, it can cover all the different areas of of legal interest that students might have. And it's just fun. I completely agree. It's definitely an enjoyable experience now for me, now that I know what I'm doing and I know a lot more about mooting. But I do think I'd be doing my old self a disservice back when I think to when I was on the GDL, I'd never done mooting before. So I think that's a good place to start. Thinking about your first ever moot or your first introduction to what this is, could you give us a little insight into how you first came across mooting and you knew that this was something you needed to get involved with? However, you really didn't know much about what it involved. I think you're right that you have a very small idea about what a barrister role involves and what mooting um, might do for you, let alone what it is. So I think the first thing that you do when you're a student is you arrive at a university and you're given a whole load of information. And one of the things that your university or GDL provider will give you is a whole load of information about the kinds of opportunities you can get involved with. And I'd say there's, there are two broad categories and they are two important elements of your pupillage application form as well, mooting and pro bono opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And not only would your, with your GDL provider provide those kind of things, but also your inner court, which I'd encourage everyone to join, especially Grey's Inn, because we have <laughs> a particularly rich programme of, of mooting. The opportunities are very clear from an early stage. There are competitions with sign-up dates early on. There are internal university competitions at almost every GDL provider that I know of. And the inns, of course, are very good at providing similar kinds of low stakes contexts in mm -hmm. which to learn mooting skills and practice them. I know, for example, that City, as well as Grey's Inn, have starter courses on the basic skills, legal research, written advocacy, oral advocacy, responding to judicial questions. So they break it down very easily for beginners. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think my first introduction to mooting did involve going to one of those introductory talks, albeit it was on Zoom at the time, which actually probably made it easier for me to just sort of slot in behind the scenes, have a little bit of a listen to what mooting was all about. But I really encourage anyone that hasn't started any type of mooting to go to these events because the information is out there. It does seem a little bit intimidating when you really don't know what you're doing. My first competition was termed a novice moot and it kind of took all the pressure off. Everyone was having their first stab at it, but that really is the best way to introduce yourself to what mooting is and then to get better, take on the feedback. Nobody's going to be an expert from the outset and everybody has to start somewhere. So I really would encourage you looking at those opportunities that your GDL provider is offering you or if you are 
a law student, there'll be an absolute multitude of mooting competitions at your university. But even external competitions, there are other universities that you're allowed to sign up to their mooting competitions. And as you mentioned, Grey's Inn also offer internal and external opportunities. So really do just give it a go. I agree. I think the first few weeks should be you madly signing up to as much as you can if you need to withdrawing later on, because you need to give yourself as many opportunities as possible to get going on the mooting front. As I say, it's going to constitute a a central part of your pupillage application. Especially when you're just starting out, you really might not even make it through the written submissions. And it doesn't matter because you're giving it a go and you're learning as you go as well. But it is as you say, a really core skill. And it's a really good opportunity to see whether the bar is for you. Mm. Because I think if you are comfortable in that kind of environment, making legal submissions, speaking to, albeit maybe fictional judges, but the idea is still there. And if you are enjoying it or you eventually come to enjoy it, then it's a great indication that this really might be a career for you. It's also a very useful opportunity to see different areas of law because your internal GDL moots are likely to involve basic contract Contract. formation (laughs) problems. That seems to be the case with most GDL providers. But the external competitions, which you can apply for as a GDL student, as a law student, different competitions have different rules, check them out online, will be on a whole range of different specialist areas. And often that, that was my first exposure to a whole range of law that you don't get to study on the GDL. That's such a good point, because I think for me, Coming from the GDL, you do your basic core modules, and I never really knew which area I liked the most. It's quite a rapid course, so you just sort of want to get the exams done, do as well as you can, without thinking of, you know, your future career path or practice area. But it was actually with you, Samuel, when you were the meeting officer at Aegis, that I signed up to my first Grey's in moot and it was an intellectual property law moot from doing that at Oxford University it gave me not only my first insight to this area of law but also allowed me to research so much more than I would have done in any other opportunity even if it was on the GDL doing a module or I know in law school you can choose your modules but it's completely different forum to research, find out more, look at the top case law. I learned so much about this practice area, so much so that I then decided that was the area that I wanted to then... Yeah, exactly. It's all thanks to you, Samuel. I'm taking full (laughs) responsibility and credit for that. But it is true. I do think mooting can be even more than just an insight into being a barrister, but can actually teach you what practice area you might like to specialise in. Did you have any similar experiences? What were the first practice areas that you looked at when you were mooting first? My first moot, I think, was quite a tricky one. It was a grazing uh, speed moot, which meant you had about 24 hours or maybe 48 hours to prepare eight minutes or 10 minutes of submissions. And it was on an employment dispute involving an employer who'd in some way caused the illness of an employee they subsequently dismissed. And the question in the Supreme Court was to what extent the court can consider the contributory effect of the employer's actions when considering the fairness of the dismissal. Gosh, that's not your basic contract law intro move. I mean, it's possible I've just made that much more complicated than that she was, but that's how (laughs) I recall it. But then I did a radically different one on challenging a parole board's decision to hold a prisoner's parole hearing over video link in in the context of a pandemic and in the context of a prisoner who has special educational needs. So that's going from judicial review to employment. And then the first real mooting competition I got involved with was the international and international law Jessup competition. 
Oh, fantastic. Which was my first real exposure to proper competitions. And you did that through Grey's Inn? And that was through Grey's Inn. Amazing. Talk us through a little bit about what that involved, because that really is a notable moot that people might have heard of. So my predecessor in the role of mooting officer, which we're going to talk about later, I know, uh, decided that he really wanted to start putting teams into these big international moots. And so what happens is centrally, the Grey's Inn Student Committee organises an application process and you submit a basic uh, CV and a basic letter of motivation, if you like. Much more informal than all the other applications you're going to be doing, which is quite useful. (laughs) And the committee chooses teams for these various moots. The, The committee will enter teams into... Most of the big international moots like Jessup, the International Criminal Court moot, the European Court of Human Rights moot, the Helga Peterson. The Viz moot. The Viz, although that's run centrally by Greys. Um, so there is loads of international mooting to be done. And so I sent a, I sent a note in saying I'd be very interested in doing any of these moots, frankly. <laughs> Give me any type of opportunity. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you've really got to enter everything. Um, and miraculously, for some reason, I suspect it was a clerical error. I was chosen. <laughs> and it was a team of four oralists and a researcher and the competition commitment was quite substantial because mm. you had the original the, the uk rounds which selected the teams from the uk which would go forward to the international rounds and the the problem was much more complicated than many of the problems you get in domestic competitions which are much more circumscribed mm. the, the moot problem that we had to deal with involved four really distinct issues of contemporary international legal interest the lawfulness, as I mentioned earlier, of shooting down a civilian aircraft by domestic law enforcement agencies, the proportionality in international legal terms of imposing certain economic measures in the context of a global pandemic, the extent to which you can offer diplomatic protection to someone seeking protection in your embassy, and then there was a jurisdictional question regarding the ICJ. It gives you a huge opportunity entering one of those big moots to really get to grips with something which is novel mm. in legal terms. There's a reason why they're choosing these issues because they, they have echoes in contemporary events. You work as a team, as you often will do in future practice. You develop arguments, test them, and then you have the opportunity to go up against teams from all around the world. So it's, a, it's an incredible social and legal experience. And I think it's a huge learning experience as well. I mean, I imagine that you didn't have too much prior knowledge. Exactly. And it's an opportunity to actually delve into a really specific area of law, do your research, as you say, work as a team, but also learn from the team. And it's a great chance to really gain some core skills. So as your first real insight into mooting, particularly international mooting. Tell me a bit more about your experience. I have a little inkling that you did rather well in this competition. Is that true? (laughs) We did. Um, We miraculously managed to win the UK rounds against the King's College London team who'd won it for about the preceding 10 years. When we eventually got the cup, it just read King's, 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 (laughs) and then eventually got Grey's in at the bottom. So that was a huge, a huge win. And I think we're going to go on to talk about some of the skills. But one thing which really came out of the international that international competition, because we spoke to the judges after our win at the UK rounds, oh, was that while the Kings team were so effective at marshalling legal principles and authorities, we had a natural style and we made pragmatic submissions, which made sense and which the judges could see being used by an international court. And we weren't making any absurd propositions. And I think that's something which can be carried into 
all yeah, absolutely. mooting competitions, all mooting, all advocacy. And it's something which has been confirmed when I go martial judges in courts or when mm. I go and shadow barristers in various courts around the world, in, in the country rather, that the importance of anchoring your submissions in something sensible. Yeah, and not to overcomplicate it, really. Again, though, if this really was your first insight into mooting, did you at any point feel out of place or did you find that actually quite quickly you were able to find your feet in what you were talking about and how you made these submissions? I'd love to hear just a little bit more about going into such a renowned competition with actually not too much experience. Yeah. So I, I should clarify that at the time that I was doing the, the Jessup, I was also entering every single other moot that I could <laughs> find um, to try and get those early opportunities where I could make all the mistakes I needed to make. Great. Yeah. Some practice. Because it's central. I remember that my first moot went reasonably well, but there's feedback from the judges. Uh, this is in a, in a grazing competition, mm. was that I was completely insubstantial in my legal submissions. It was just fluff. It was just, just I was I was speaking very compellingly, but I wasn't saying anything. Mm. And I think a lot of people go into mooting thinking that it's some kind of student debate or it's some kind of, you know, just a pure, simple advocacy exercise. Mm. I think one of the things that I had to come to terms with quite quickly was actually this is a legal problem which is brought to the fictional court for a judicial determination and you're representing a party yeah. and you want your party to win. And winning means going away with the financial winnings, or it may mean that your client gets off his or her conviction or the sentence is reduced, whatever it may be. Yeah. There's a concrete result and you're, you're trying to achieve that. But to answer your question directly about how you come to terms with what is a totally different world without much experience is you're making all those mistakes in those moots. You're receiving the feedback. You're acting on it. You're going to the next round in some you're speaking to people who are good at it. You're going to those training sessions that you're providing or the or the end of court. You're asking the judges afterwards, what can I do to, to make this better? Or you're changing your advocacy style. And I think one important thing to remember is just as there are as many different styles of barrister, there are an equal number of styles of advocacy at a meeting level. And you don't need to conform to any particular idea of, of an advocate. Mm. You can find your own style and you can take your time to do it. There are some particular skills that we're going to go on to talk about, but I think in terms of the imposter syndrome that you might feel at the beginning of a uh, of your of your mooting career, you just have to stomach it. You have to accept that everyone's going to be a little bit rubbish. They might be, you know, putting it on a little bit, sounding a bit pompous, trying to you know be a criminal advocate in 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 some crown court, trying to get someone off a, a huge criminal penalty. And actually, no, you can be calm. And you can take it slowly and you can think about what you would, as a judge, want to hear. So from your experience, what do you think are those key skills that you need to be good at mooting? I think a good way to look at it, and, and this is perhaps what I was gesturing towards in my last answer, is imagine what you'd want to receive, both in terms of written and oral advocacy, as a judge. Great way of thinking about it. Mm. And that's true for pupillage interviews. That's definitely true in real courts. You need to think about what the judge needs to hear and how they want it communicated. So in respect of your written advocacy, if we start there, the, the preparedness, what are you trying to achieve from your skeleton argument? It's a summary of your written case, which means you don't go into, into ridiculous detail. Courts are currently trying to reduce the size of skeleton arguments in a, in a real life context. So there's no reason why you have to put superfluous detail into yeah. what is essentially a document which is gonna guide your judge through your oral submissions. 
bearing in mind also that in a mooting context, your judges probably won't have read your skeleton argument, <laughs> or if they have, it would have been the five to 10 minute train journey to the Glanced to the Exactly. Mm. So be brief, be concise, uh, to the point. Your submission should be easily understood within 10 to 15 words with the basic authorities and references that you want the, yeah. the judge to refer to. And it's worth to say different competitions might require different levels of detail. When you start out, I remember skeleton arguments had to be confined to just one A4 page, which sounds great. But actually, when you have lots of different points that you want to make, it's quite difficult to know what are the key concise points that you need to draw out of your longer submissions into a skeleton argument. However, of course, when you get to more national and international competitions, you might get a little bit more freedom of what you can include in that skeleton argument and what case law you can refer to. But it's definitely key everywhere you go that you want it to be nice and concise well summarized and well structured would you mm -hmm. agree oh absolutely mm. and i think that you can make it all of those things only once you've really understood the law which governs the particular area and that's by using effective legal research methods and it's difficult to talk about that in a podcast context and i would i would very much recommend that you go to your your providers training sessions yes, on that absolutely. because there are there are ways that you can use the legal databases online to identify the relevant case law mm. the basic principle being find the most recent court of appeal or supreme court case on the subject but it's really by knowing the law inside out that you can make those submissions nice and concise to, to borrow your your phrase um <laughs> Obviously, fundamentally, meetings about your oral advocacy. So the most important thing, in some ways, is the is your how you construct your oral submissions, and that's that's probably a discussion we can have. I think it's there's so much to say on the subject. I think the the, the first thing is, and this is so trite, but only make two or three points, not five. Yeah. Don't try and rush through all the points that you have very diligently identified mm -hmm. in the course of your legal research. Don't even try and get through your whole written case in your skeleton argument. Um, you assess how much time you've got, you assess how much time you think you think you're going to need to make effectively your two or three best points and you plan accordingly. Would you agree with that? I completely agree because at the end of the day, you're wanting to win on each submission you make. There's no use just skating around the subject. You want to make sure that you're drilling down into the fundamental question, you're answering what the judge wants to know about your submission. So you have to really go into detail on the point that you want to make. So I do think it really is a case of quality over quantity, especially when the judge starts to intervene. They might have a lot more questions for you than you anticipated. But I think that's a good sign. I think when a judge is asking you questions, is interrupting you, it shows that he is engaging in what you're saying. So make sure you do know what you're talking about and you've gone into enough detail about that. I definitely agree. Don't overcomplicate things by wanting to say a million things within your short window. It Absolutely. might seem like you've got so much time to fill, but actually time goes when you're speaking and especially when the judge starts talking as well. The other thing to remember is that you're trying to win the moot. You're not necessarily, I mean, you want to win the case, mm. but sometimes the law won't necessarily be with you. Great point, exactly. And so if you're trying to rush through all of these various submissions because you think that's what's going to clinch in legal terms, mm. the argument, then you're wasting your time because what you really want to be doing is impressing the judges so they put you through to the next round mm. um, or that they consider you the best mooter in the group or whatever the prize might yeah. be. Let's remember it's not a real court case, <laughs> although it's trying to be, but that's such a good point. Yeah, you want to be the best mooter there. 
And that perhaps leads me on to, I think, probably my next point, which is the key to the oral submissions is judging your judges, understanding what they're expecting from you, hearing what their style is like. You were talking about judicial interventions. If you've got a really interventionist judge, you're going to have to handle them differently mm. to how you'd handle a very silent bench. And that depends on the kind of competition. The Jessup, for example, they jump in immediately and you had 25 minutes to speak. And they gave you no time to speak. They would constantly be badgering you with questions and you've got to manage your bench sensibly. In international competitions, you have longer to speak. The judges will intervene immediately mm. and they're famous for being very interventionist. They're angry international lawyers who are <laughs> having to spend a day doing this. But also know their stuff. And know their stuff yeah. and will pick up on the slightest yeah. bit of nonsense. <laughs> um, but that's also true of your, of, your, of your domestic competition judges too, who will have a general understanding of the principles in many areas of law, even if they're not specialists, and will, will smell something fishy if you're trying to stretch the facts or misframe or reframe the law. Yeah. Um, so it, I think it is about seeing what your judges are like and managing them sensibly, not getting flustered when they ask you questions. One of the big ways that you impress the judges during your oral submissions, and it's one of the, the ways that you impress a pupillage interview panel, mm. is when they ask you a question, you don't desperately try and get back on track to your skeleton argument. You don't desperately try and move on. You engage very meaningfully and seriously and directly with the particular concern they're expressing, the particular question they might have. That's a really important point to make, that you can't be wedded to any sort of script. You just have to know what you're talking about because that will really impress a judge, particularly when they do ask you a question. They might do it on purpose to get you off of your train of thought, but being able to be eloquent enough and comfortable enough in your submissions to then either jump right back into where you left off or actually to take it down a different path because you can then read that your judge hasn't quite been convinced on your point and you actually just need to change your train of thought, for example. So that's definitely key. I think you're right. I think it's about being flexible. Mm. And to be flexible, you need to be very prepared. You need to know your law inside out. You need to know the submissions that you want to make inside out without having to reference them relentlessly from a script. And part of that's also that flexibility is also about knowing when to make concessions and move on. Mm -hmm. If you think your bench, as you say, is unconvinced and has remained unconvinced <laughs> for a couple of minutes about a particular submission, you move on. You ex or you accept tactically that um, that is not your strongest point and perhaps the bench might be more convinced by the next one you're going to make. There are lots of ways that you can handle different kinds of judges and the skill and the fun is going into the room not knowing who they are, mm. or in some cases you do, but you don't know necessarily their style of judging and adapting your advocacy, adapting your submissions to fit what's required in the particular context. I think that's a really impressive skill of a mooter, someone who doesn't seem phased by any sort of judicial intervention and can continue to speak so eloquently about their particular submission, despite a judge challenging you on a particular point. We need to remember the reason we're doing this. Not only is it really good fun and it's a good exposure to different areas of law, but it also sets you up both for real practice in real courtrooms, dealing yeah. with real judges who have different styles of managing their courtroom. But also, more immediately, when you're applying for pupillage, of course. if not your first round, then certainly your second round is going to be in front of sometimes quite an exuberant panel <laughs> of, well, barrister members of that particular chambers. Mm. And one of the things they're looking for is how you respond to the pressure of being questioned, 
how you respond to a little bit of hostility from mm. a particular question, how you respond to different styles of questions, how you deal with time pressure. Those kinds of things are all simulated in a mooting context. And that's one of the reasons why chambers look for mooting in uh, your paper applications. But I think it's worth noting that mooting is not the only context in which you can obviously learn these skills. One of the other things that we're, we're not really talking about today, but pro bono opportunities, advocacy opportunities are available in other contexts. You don't have to just do it in mooting. And if mooting is, is, is seeming a little bit forced for you and it's not quite working for you and you don't think you're actually developing the advocacy skills you need to, then there are a whole range of other opportunities. For example, when I was on the GDL and on the bar course, I uh, was a pro bono advocate at the School Ex Exclusion Project, then went on to be a director of it afterwards. Or there's the free representation units, or there are various organizations yeah. where you can actually learn these skills doing a very direct form of, of advocacy for real clients. So meeting great. I definitely recommend everyone does mooting, mm. but don't forget the other avenues too. It's great to touch on pro bono as well, actually, because as you say, being a student wanting to come to the bar, it is all about making the most of all of those opportunities that are out there in order to build those skills, hone your abilities as an advocate. So as you mentioned, you've got the free representation unit, you have the school's exclusion project and many other pro bono opportunities that your GDL provider will have for you. But also at Gray's Inn, we have so many different opportunities as well to practice and demonstrate your advocacy. I mean, you were the Aegis mooting officer, which we've only briefly mentioned, but tell us a little bit about what that involved and what opportunities Gray's Inn has for students wanting to gain some advocacy experience. Mooting opportunities at Gray's Inn have exploded in the last few years. We now send teams to all the main international law uh, mooting competitions, like the Jess that we've spoken about, the ICC competition on international criminal law, the Helga Pedersen European Human Rights Moot, the Price Moot, which is all about press freedom in an international context. Domestically, we enter teams to the uh, Michael Corkery criminal moot. Gosh, you've retained um, all of this information quite well. well. You can see why he got the job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I, I, I have remembered many of the competitions because they're, they're high-profile competitions that we send people off to. And we, we invest quite a lot of money in sending teams to these competitions. Mm. And we have the huge privilege at Gray's Inn that the education department really supports that. And so if you're unable, for example, to get onto one of the teams in, in, at your university, uh, the inns are a really fabulous way to get involved, particularly Grey's Inn, mm. which uh, will enter teams into all the major moves, as I've said, and give you uh, often substantial coaching assistance as well. Um, so if you feel like the imposter when you're on yeah. and a young, uh, as a young mooter, you'll actually have senior members of the inn sometimes supporting you with practice moots. You'll have people who've done the moots in previous years who are supporting you. And so it's a really nurturing context in which to, uh, to start to learn. I want to echo that as well. You don't have to have so much previous experience of mooting in order to start, particularly with Grey's Inn. As you said, you hadn't had all of that mooting experience before. I remember when I was applying last year for moots with Grey's Inn, I thought I didn't have a chance because when you are asked to apply, you are asked to give your previous experience, but you can pluck that advocacy experience from any avenues of life. The Aegis Committee aren't looking for, you know, previous wins in international competitions in order to get onto the Grey's Inn team. This really is an education-led scheme where 
grades in are wanting to nurture students that are coming in wanting to gain these opportunities and you don't have to prove any sort of ability in order to get onto the team as you mentioned it's such a learning opportunity getting into these moots working with a team who might have a whole mix of experience of mooting in the past so please don't feel like you are unqualified or underqualified in order to get onto a grazing moot but also into an international competition. In fact, the inns are there to provide opportunities for students and to sort of get your foot in the door. So definitely do look at becoming a part of a Grey's Inn team. The other part of the, the Grey's Inn programme of mooting support is separate from the international competitions or than the domestic ones, is that we run, we try and run two ages speed moots yeah. every year, quick fire moots. The moots where you get given the problem a, a day or two in advance of the of the actual moot, so you're not meant to spend too much time yeah, on it. Yeah, the pressure's off. Pressure's off. There are no prizes. It's just an opportunity to really train in a low-stakes environment with young barristers who remember being in your yeah, situation. They give you proper feedback at the end. It's also a chance to be engraved and have a little drink afterwards, which is quite yeah, fun. Yeah, and there's loads of people that do apply to these, and it's not about... Um, it's not really a competitive environment. It's more just about giving it a go. You meet lots of other people in the same shoes as you. So I do think that's a great introduction to mooting, actually. Those ages speed moots. So do look out for that if you are a student now. And in addition to those moots, we also have a GDL moot, which is for people on the conversion course. And again, that's a, a slightly lower stakes opportunity to develop your mooting in a more competitive environment but only with people who are in a similar position to yeah. you. So you're not up against people with years of mooting experience. You're you're there with people in in, in the same cohort. The the other thing to mention in relation to, to, to Grey's Inn mooting is that the education department runs its own internal competition, which is yet another opportunity to, to get involved in, in mooting. And there you are judged by some really interesting young and senior barristers, as well as judges, sometimes even at the Court of Appeal and Supreme Court, if you if you come on a good day. So it's a really valuable opportunity to learn from the best, not just from your peers, but also from really senior people who've seen advocacy, see advocacy day in, day out. And, you know, you'll get judges who come in from a day in the High Court and will be judging you in a moot. It's, I mean, it's an incredible opportunity. Absolutely. I think we haven't really made that point enough, is that a lot of the time, judges will be giving you feedback that actually watch barristers in court and judge in court. And so this kind of feedback is invaluable. Even if you don't feel very comfortable, you don't feel very confident, just take the feedback on board and you'll find that the next time you do it, you'll be far better than you were the first. And you can constantly build on that sort of feedback and improvement. And that really is what mooting is all about. Start getting that experience as soon as you can in order to then use those skills, not just in pupillage interviews, but on pupillage applications, mooting, pro bono, all of those sorts of opportunities look fantastic. And it really is what Chambers are looking for. I think you'd agree. But just as a conclusion to our conversation, I think we've touched on everything we could possibly talk about to do with mooting. But have you got any sort of final advice for students that are wanting to get involved with mooting? Yes. So I think there are a couple of things you can do. The first is definitely get involved in as many opportunities as early as possible. So you can make your mistakes early and start to develop from there. Definitely go to the training provided either by your GDL university or your Parkhorse university or your undergraduate university or indeed the Inn of Court, because there is a lot of support available. Mm. The other thing that you might want to do is go and have a look at courtroom advocacy, go and see what that looks like. 
go and see if you like a particular style or you can sympathize with a certain way of making submissions that you think the judge would find attractive. There are also a whole lot of moots which are recorded online. So you can see some of the best mooters in the country in action in various types of competitions. And so that's a useful way in which to uh, to see what it should look like or could look like. That's fantastic advice. And it just goes to show you that the information is out there. The opportunities are out there. So please do make the most of that if you are a student wanting to get started. But other than that, I think we can wrap up that episode. Thank you so much, Samuel, for joining me and talking us all through everything to do with mooting. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at AGI Students.